This episode of Field to Fork was produced as part of the Seattle Good Business Network's Good Food Economy Program and supported by Eat Local First, home of the Washington Food and Farm Finder, Washington's source for local food. Find local farms, seafood, and more at eatlocalfirst.org. This is the Field to Fork podcast, where we take you on a deep dive into the local food economy of the Puget Sound region, from farming operations to fine dining and everywhere in between, going to the source to find out how food comes to be and gets to you, direct from the people making it happen. I'm your host, Keith Bacon, and with me is my new co-host, Becky Selengut. In part two of our special report on the first ever Good Food Connections event, produced by our partners at Seattle Good Business Network, Becky and I take a trip down memory lane, which also happens to be where the food and drinks are, along with so many inspiring people and stories. Take a listen. Beyond it being an industry event, Good Food Connections was also like a reunion for professionals and friends who might not have seen each other in years. And one of the first people that we ran into was your friend. Amy Grondon. Let's go back and listen to our interaction with Amy. My name's Amy Grondon. I'm a commercial fisherman. I live in Port Townsend, Washington. My fishing boat is called Araminta, and my business is Duna Fisheries. And what brought you out here today? Since pandemic, we stopped meeting up with people and making these close, personal, small food producer connections. And small food producers don't really have a lot of time to go work with business cards, and they certainly don't work with a marketing team. They are their own best marketing system, and an event like this today gives them a place and a day off to talk about what they do and meet people who want to buy their product. Awesome. What's the one project that you're most excited about that you're working on this year? My commercial fishing boat. We're doing a lot of work on it, and it's frightening and wonderful at the same time. So it's like it's it's beautiful. It's built in 1945, and we're getting down to places that haven't been seen since 1945. And that's yeah, it's pretty good. It looks it's looking good. Have you been on Amy's boat? I have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's pretty awesome. And she and her husband Greg have put some serious work into that boat, and mm. it's just it's full of history and love and mm-hmm. good fish and. Yeah, we got to talk to one of the, I don't know, founding, most inspirational women in the local food economy, Amy Grandin. She is a connector of all people Yeah, when she's not being a badass out, on, <laughs> out in Alaska hauling fish. Right, just restoring my 1945 exactly. fishing boat. No big whoop. Yeah, no big deal. And running into Amy also brought back a lot of memories for you of the Forks event that Mariah mentioned in our interview that was an inspiration behind Good Food Connections. Let's go back and listen to what you said about it at the time. Uh-oh. So this is bringing back some old memories. Of Forks. Of Forks. Like, back in the day, we did this every single year and everyone in the community would look forward to it because it was like not only a reunion but you also like met so many new people made so many new connections and you just got to talk about like the stuff that farmers fishermen chefs producers distributors never get to be in the same room to talk about and i feel like you can't even track how many great ideas came out of these meetings Um, really like new businesses and things like that oh i'm sure i don't know how you could possibly quantify all that grew out of that Was it pretty fun, too? Oh, my God. So much fun. Because it was just like, you know, old friends, new friends, you know, drinking, gathering, you know, sharing the, like, deep in the trenches stories of what life is like in this business. Yeah, it was a lot of fun for an industry event, for like a networking event. Super fun. But why did I sound drunk in that? 
Oh, little clip. I don't know. That was pretty early. That was early. I don't know why I sound drunk. You were drunk on caffeine withdrawal. I think I was. (laughs) I could not find a cup of coffee to save my life. Yeah. No, it was a lot of fun. And I felt like it was like the high school reunion I have always wanted to go to and Mm -hmm. never got to experience quite like that. Then we have this great panel called Essential Links, which was focused on new processing projects, bringing locally grown, raised and harvested products to the table, including to the table of underserved communities. That was really interesting. It was fascinating. And not just fascinating because they all wore the same outfit to the panel. (laughs) That's right. There was like this unspoken (laughs) dress code. It was all navy blue all day long. (laughs) But some of the highlights from that were uh, Adasha Turner from Modest Family Solutions talking about the South Seattle Community Food Hub that is in the works, an ambitious but totally essential project. Yeah, it's going to be great. And it's down in in my neck of the woods. And the diversity of things they're going to be able to provide for people who don't normally get access to that kind of central location for packaging, for food, for redistribution of different food. It's a really exciting project. Yeah. Henry Wong, director of the Food Business Resource Center, is talking about bringing the 21 Acres facility in Woodenville back to life with an incubator program. Which is very cool because I actually used to teach there back in the day. And, oh, really? and it's, um, it's a really great space that mm-hmm. probably is being underused. Yeah. So this is going to be something to keep your eye on. Yeah, for sure. I've also been to that space. And the first time I was there, I was like, what, how is this out here? And no one knows about it. And I think it's just been waiting for someone to come on and take advantage of it in a good way. In a good way. Kent Wheeler, an associate professor at the UW School of Environmental and Forest Sciences, and also director of the Center for International Trade and Forest Products, was talking about big leaf maple syrup being developed for production here in the Pacific Northwest. Super, super exciting. So yeah. my, my quick take on the uh, big leaf maples, when I used to be a cook at the herb farm back in the day, we would harvest the big leaf maple flower clusters and mm. tempura fry them. And they have this lovely maple syrup flavor to them. Uh-huh. And so, you know, they've got birch syrup in Canada and maple syrup back on the East Coast, but we got to get our own tree food going here. And so I'm excited about the Big Leaf Maple Syrup Project. Yeah, they've made just a little bit of it so far, but there's plans in the works for it to really become a big thing. Uh, We also had Ryan and Haley, the owners of Mount Rainier Creamery and Market, who were talking about opening a drive-through dairy in Enumclaw that will also be like a co-op for local farmers and food producers. Okay, I have a little crush on this couple because (laughs) they were super cool. They're Mm going to be doing their own bottling and processing, which is big dairy does not want small producers to do this. Yeah, Come on, drive-through. They're going to team up with other people and have you can get your eggs and your dairy and your bread all mm-hmm. at the same place. And maybe they can team up with a little cocktail person. You can get a little cocktail mm. to go. I don't know. But the <laughs> sky's the limit. They've been working on this for 11 years. And I kudos to them. Yeah. Perseverance. Our, yeah. They've really gone through it. And one of the things they said was, uh, if anyone knows our opening date, please let us know because <laughs> they keep pushing it back over they, and the over. The whole panel was like, we don't want to be liars. Also, Darren from Falling River Meats, who is apparently also known as the Corn Dog King. <laughs> At first I thought he was joking, but then I realized he's not joking. Yeah. He really is known as the Corn Dog They make King. hot dogs. It's awesome. Among other products. And he has a new store opening in North Bend. He had a lot of interesting things to say about the trials and tribulations of meat processing. Um, and he also threw out that term leafers. Yeah, which uh, is awesome. That was new to me. Yeah. So he's a meter. <laughs> <laughs> leafers are farmers selling <laughs> produce, which that just was hysterical. Yeah. Another person with intense perseverance because we talked about big dairy. You've got big milk and big meat. And mm. they are out to make sure that 
little folks do not get to do their own cutting and selling to right. the retail market. So right. good for him for persevering. Yeah. Persevering through lots of red tape. Doing the real work. And uh, also the moderator did a great job, Mike Lufkin. He's the local food economy manager for King County. And he did a great job. He did a great job. He kept it going. He was mm -hmm. funny. Thanks to all the people who participated in that panel. We really got a lot out of it. And after that, we hit the rapid share presentations where people presented projects that they were working on. Some of my highlights from that were the All All Cafe in Pioneer Square, which features a seasonal menu showcasing indigenous foods. Oh my God, I am so excited about this project. Yeah. I cannot wait to get my hands on the Three Sisters stew. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really exciting to have in indigenous food available for Seattleites to try and also to support their project. Yeah. And it's housed in the Chief Seattle Club affordable housing complex for urban native people. And that's again in Pioneer Square. Did yep. I mention that it was in Pioneer Square? Perhaps, but I don't listen to you most of the time. Let's drill that home. <laughs> <laughs> the growing good partnership between PCC's food bank program, the Neighborhood Farmers Market, and the Harvest Against Hunger organization, another success story that sprang from the pandemic and is now connecting farmers directly to food banks. Yeah, this the synergy between these three organizations and or companies and organizations was pretty pretty neat and it was all very fast and I love when you can find like public private partnerships like that mm -hmm. really make a difference. Did you have any other highlights from those rapid shares? No. Here's, here's, I, here's the list. I, I think that you nailed it. Okay. Um you it was very exciting, though. I mean, mm -hmm. we even had a Hmong farmer speak as well, the flower uh, mm -hmm. cooperative. Uh, hearing some stories that we don't normally hear and get promoted it was nice. It was beyond your just average local hippie farm. <laughs> it was. They went into like in indigenous and immigrant communities and their farms. And I think that's really important that we got to hear those stories. Yeah. Another project that we didn't hear about in a presentation, but we learned more about through your crack interviewing and reporting skills was the Organic Seed Alliance. And you talked to Kara Lores of the Organic Seed Alliance about that project. Let's listen to your interview. Let's. We have been working to help farmers adapt dry corn to this region because it doesn't naturally grow really well here unless you can find the varieties that can have our cool uh, moist springs and short season. And so we're excited to have been able to help um, some farmers through Viva Farms who wanted to grow the corn that they could grow, um, some, something similar to what they could grow in Awaka. And um, that corn needs to stay in Awaka, so we're looking at other varieties that can grow here that are similar. And so we've been working with them, we've been growing dry corn, and then we have a wonderful restaurant in Port Townsend called La Cocina, and the chef there, Lizette, has taken the corn of many, many different varieties that have different colors and flavors and textures and has nixtamalized them in a restaurant. We've done tortilla tastings with her. And this is just a wonderful local food connection. And yet it's not just local, it's really international in a way. Um, and we're just really excited to be part of that. I just got back from Mexico myself and got to go to a ranch and see all the different corns that they were growing there. And so, like, I'm pretty excited to hear that because it was such a great experience for me. Anything else that's going on with uh, Organic Seed Alliance that you're really excited about right now? Yeah, we are um, always trying to get the skills uh, for doing both seed production and enough variety stewardship um, skills that farmers need in order to have varieties that will really do well on their farm. And to have that power 
to not be dependent on what the market says you should be growing, but to find what will really do well for you. And so we have an online seed production course and we're trying to get that going again for the coming season as well as finding mentors uh, across the country that, that people interested in learning more about seed production can connect with. Have you been to that restaurant in Port Townsend? I have not. I, that's at the top of my list now. Should we do a field to fork yes. on the road? Field to fork field trip. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Organic Seed Alliance is pretty cool. I've attended a couple of their events in the past. And mm-hmm. one thing I really love about them is that they introduce all these different varieties of seed that you might not be aware of. Breaking out of, you know, let's keep the theme going. Let's say big carrot. Okay. Has one carrot that grows really well. Mm-hmm. It, Instead, we got to try all these different kinds of carrots and Mm -hmm. see which ones do best in the field. And then they encourage farmers to grow. So I've tried all different kinds of radicchios and all different kinds of carrots. And it's a very educational, very supportive for local farmers. It's a great organization. Cool. Another exciting venture making some buzz at the Good Food Connections event was another one of your friends. Yeah. uh, I ran into my buddy, Tina, who used to teach at the pantry cooking school. She Mm -hmm. still does, actually. And she's about to open her first brick and mortar. Do you Mm -hmm. remember where it was going to be housed? I can't remember exactly. Let's listen to the interview and see if we can find out. My name is Tina Fumble with Gold Coast Girl Kitchen. And you have a new project in the works. Yes. So I am hoping to open my first um, brick and mortar in hopefully a few months here in Seattle. Yeah. And how does an event like this help you in that mission? Yes, I'm here to meet local producers that I can get seafood from, meats, produce, everything that you need to make good food, Um, trying to source as locally as possible. I would love to walk away having found every possibly thing I could source all here in one place. So Tina, tell me, if you were to source your favorite pre-shift beverage from one of the producers here, like what, what would it be? It would probably be whiskey. Yeah. Where's the alcohol vendors? That is a very important question, Tina. Where are the alcohol vendors? We are going to find them here. We're going to report back because by 530, we should know where all of them are. Sound good? Tina is bringing to Seattle cuisine that we don't often see here, which is the cuisine of West Africa. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, great to have her on the scene doing what she does. She's a wonderful chef and cook, and I'm just excited for her. Yeah. I picked up a jar of her sauce. I'm totally blanking on the name of it now. Do you remember? It was like a pickled pickled pepper, pickled pickle something. A delicious kind of fire that I've never really experienced before. Thank you, Tina. Thank you, Tina. (laughs) And then at that point, we went in search of our own little alcohol break at the Hatch Cantina across the street. Yeah, I gave up on on the lack of coffee and went right to alcohol. (laughs) So thank you, Hatch Cantina, for taking care of us. I've really enjoyed your quesadilla with cheese inside and outside. And I really personally enjoyed their popcorn chicken, which was bomb. And also, it turns out that people were going there for shots during the day, we found out. Yeah, we thought we were so sly. We totally thought we were doing something unique, but no, (laughs) we were late to the shot game. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for taking care of us, Hatch Cantina. And then it was time for the big 
tasting event with over 40 vendors, local vendors, offering samples of so many delicious, amazing things. One of the first people that we talked to was Clinton McClung, who's working with the Patty Pan Cooperative. Here's what he had to say about being at the event. One of the reasons we really wanted to be here is we're expanding like where we're selling our products. And we don't want to just be in like grocery chains. We want to be in, you know, mercantiles and provisions places, those kind of places. So hopefully we're going to meet some folks like that here as well. And I always like meeting other small food producers and just hearing their stories. And I already bought like six things. I can't help myself. <laughs> what, what's on your shopping list? What'd you get? There's some sauces down at the end. I can't remember the name of them, but she gave me samples of all of them. And there are a couple I just had to make. I'm going to make dumplings out of. Um, Mil Palmasa, I went over and bought some corn tortillas because they're my favorite. Uh, what else did I buy? I just wandered around and like want to try everything. Oh, somebody over there has chickpea pancakes that were really good and really interesting. Yeah. All right, you heard it here first, chickpea pancakes. <laughs> what were some of your highlights? My highlight was definitely, can't remember his name, from Wendy Farms. Tibbs. Uh, Tibbs. He was bringing in vanilla from, was it his cousin? Yes, And in Uganda. And we get to talking, and I'm like, how much I want to buy some of this beautiful, plump, gorgeous vanilla, which mm -hmm. most people know vanilla is extremely expensive. Yeah. And he's like, oh, go ahead, it's free. <laughs> and I grabbed the entire box. Um, just joking. I, I did. But then I put them back. You thought about it. I thought about it. He was great. And then I loved at the very end. He's so passionate about mm -hmm. the coffee and the vanilla, even though he runs a blueberry farm. Yeah. In Bellingham. In Bellingham. But at the very end, he says, I'm a pharmacist. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I love you. He's so amazing. Pharmacist by day, blueberry farmer and spice importer by night. I mean, this guy, incredible. He makes me feel really lazy. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have him on the podcast to learn more about his story because it was really fascinating. In the hot takes game, we would say coffee or vanilla. <laughs> See what he would say. <laughs> I was also a big fan of the non-alcoholic sparkling rosé from Joyous Wines. It, absolutely. I agree. Shocked. I've never tried non-alcoholic wine, so I don't really actually, because uh, I'm a wash. Um, <laughs> so I don't have a lot to compare it to, but I will say that the rosé was really stood out to me as a yeah. satisfying alternative. Yeah. Although I will also say that one of my thoughts with it was like, this would be great, great. with vodka. Okay. That's what Keith <laughs> says to me. He pulls me aside. He goes, wouldn't this be great with vodka? And I'm like, that kind of goes against what the whole purpose of having not alcoholic wine is. Okay, Lush, I don't feel alone Sorry. anymore. I felt seen. Yeah. I do want to note that Joyous Wines, according to their website, they are the only sober-owned and woman-owned non-alcoholic winery in the country and the first to win gold in an industry wine competition. In a regular wine competition? Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and on those nights where I don't drink, Tuesday and Thursday of every March, right. I will be reaching for their rosé. Great. What else did we love? Those uh, Oh, Electric Habitat. Oh, we'll save them for last. Okay. Hold on. Salted Brown Butter Rice crispy Treat from Sweet Treats. Okay, that was pretty much like my favorite yeah. bite of the whole day. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, Rice crispy Treats, but also the salted butter. And yeah. The, it was a perfect Rice crispy mm -hmm, Treat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And last but not least, I think it's probably our mutual favorite of the day. I mean, not to play favorites, but come on, you kind of have to a little bit. I mean, right from the name of this business. Electric Habitat. Great name. Do you remember the story behind it? I. It's a band, but I can't remember the band. 
Oh, yes. Well, I don't think I could remember the band either. But anyway, Electric <laughs> Habitat, great name. It had something to do with Jerry Harrison and Adrian Ballou or Talking Heads or something that adjacent to that. I think I was a little bit high on Rice Krispie Treat at that point, <laughs> so I don't remember very well. Uh, they were very cool. Very cool couple. And they have a wide selection of pickled things. And I have a stupid garlic allergy. And so the only one I could try was the pickled celery. But if everything else tasted as good as that pickled celery, which I don't really ever see. Yeah jarred before, then then that place is slamming. Let's listen to our interview with them. My name is Marissa, and I'm the owner of Electric Habitat. And uh, what brought you here today? Uh, we were invited by the Seattle Good Connection. Um, they tried our products and love it, and love that we source everything locally um, here in Seattle and wanted us to be part of the event. Beyond uh, getting an opportunity to have people sample your amazing, delicious treats, what else do you get out of an event like this? I think... The most important thing about this event is like all these small business owners and producers and wholesale buyers get to come together and connect. Um, and as a small business owner, sometimes it can feel lonely, but to have all these other people doing what we're doing all in one room, um, having the same problems or the same exciting things, it really helps us connect and be together and build our community. Yeah. I just tried your pickled celery, which I've never had in my life, and it's blowing my mind into a million pieces. Where did pickled celery, the idea, come for? Uh, as a like pickler, I pickle literally everything. And, you know, you always have celery you buy for one thing, and it's sitting in the back of the fridge. And I said, I'm going to try to pickle it. And I did, and I just said, this is amazing. And I was like, I'm going to sell this one day. This was many years ago. And when I started this company, I just knew that it was going to be part of my product line. Um, and I've been making it for years and snacking on it, um, but now I get to bring it to the world and to all the people. In all of your pickling experimentations, what's the one thing that did not turn out very well at all? That is a good question. Um, or what's one thing that you would never pickle? A lot of people like pickled mushrooms, but I'm not a fan. Although, I think anything pickled right is probably delicious. Have you ever tried pickling a banana? Uh, not yet, but I guess it's next on my list now. <laughs> Have you ever tried a pickled banana? Came out of left field. It's on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you like you like prompted mm -hmm. her with the, the pickled banana, <laughs> which is, by the way, our new business name. Yes, pickled banana. Mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that goes well with made with bacon. And beyond all the like amazing tastings that we got to do, Keith, mm -hmm. we were running around having fun with everybody. We also yes. were talking some real talk about where you have to start in order to produce a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so land access is a real issue yeah. and something personally I would love to learn more about. But through our conversations with one particular person, which we will listen to right now, we learned a little bit about how important that is. I'm Melissa Borstein. I work with King County's Agriculture Program. And what brings you to this event today? I got invited to moderate the panel on farmland access, and it was really exciting to get to um, facilitate three awesome voices talking about the different aspects of farmland access. It's such a key part of the challenges around farming in this region is the lack of access to affordable farmland. So getting to, to help share some of that story and, and talk about some of the creative solutions that are happening. Melissa, you're mentioning how your program helped the first Hmong uh, florist farmers who are famous in Pike Place Market. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yes, in the 80s, uh, King County partnered with uh, WSU Extension and Pike Place Market to create a space where King County provided farmland, WSU provided some technical training, and Pike Place provided a market outlet for newly arrived Hmong refugees and training them in how to grow flowers. At that time, it was about five families, and now there's more than 40 families across the region selling flowers in this area. Um, it's a real huge success story, actually, about immigrant ambition and, and being able to reinvent themselves and provide such an iconic part of Pike Place Market. Um, why are you really excited to be here today, specifically? It's that same sense. I mean, that there's a lot of opportunities right now. There's a lot shifting. Um, things honestly feel really hard right now and difficult as we're really peeling back the layers of, of why land access is so challenging and so inaccessible to many people in this area, especially people that want to be farming and producing food for their community. So I get all the feels for that piece of how beautiful it is to make these connections, but to also get to network with people and talk about how do we problem solve around improving going forward. So clearly there's a lot of work to be done but people are diving in and doing it. And it was weird how many of the stories trace back to the pandemic from this time of like incredible hardship. And, and what sprang from that is all this innovation, all this cooperation, all these new ideas, and so much of it having to do with strengthening our local food economy. That's what this is all about. Yeah, I was especially touched by the resiliency of so many different communities that were brought together on this day. And I've always known this in the hospitality industry, but it goes further than that into the farmers, the producers, the makers. And yeah. I'm, I feel pretty lucky that I got to be there that day with you. And um, I think this is a very crucial, important conference that needs to keep going. Yeah. Here's to the next one in 2024. See you next year. Yeah, I'll see you there. When we have our new business, Pickled Banana. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Field to Fork. If you like what you heard, make sure you don't miss a moment. Hit that follow button on your podcast player app. And while you're there, you could also leave us a great review. I know you've got it in you. And why stop there? Take a second to share our show with your friends and family. And if you have story ideas for Becky and I to explore together in future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a DM on Instagram and Facebook, where our handle on both platforms is at Field to Fork Podcast. Might as well go ahead and follow our socials there too, right? Field to Fork is a Made with Bacon production, all rights reserved. Interviews have been edited for brevity and clarity. I'm Keith Bacon. Thanks for listening.